transmitting live from the heart of Times Square on 99.5 FM, WBAI New York, Pacifica Radio for the Tri-State Area. This is Trump Watch, a weekly series investigating the actions of and reactions to President Donald J. Trump and his administration. I'm your host, Jesse Lent. These are tough people. These are not angels. These are not little angels. These are tough people, and we're not letting them into our country. They're not coming in illegally. And you take a look at the scene where thousands and thousands of people are marching. And then you hear that Democrats want to have open borders, and they want to invite caravan after caravan into our country, overwhelming your schools, your hospitals, and your communities. And by the way, those caravans, you know, you look at what's happening. Does anybody think that's just by accident that they're forming? We want people to come into our country, but they have to come into our country legally and through merit and through merit. That was President Donald Trump speaking at a rally in Columbia, Missouri on November 1st, five days before last Tuesday's midterm election, in which the Democrats retook the House of Representatives by a substantial margin and Republicans gained between one and two Senate seats, depending on the outcome of the recount in Florida. Footage and edit courtesy of Reuters. The so-called caravan of South American migrants, which the president claimed also included Middle Eastern members, heading towards the U.S.-Mexico border was a popular talking point for Donald Trump in the days leading up to the midterms, even prompting an additional National Guard presence in the region. But he has yet to bring it up since Election Day. Hello and welcome to Trump Watch. The caravan, of course, was far from the first time that President Trump has engaged in this type of racially charged rhetoric from the speech that launched his presidential campaign in 2015 when he called Mexicans criminals and rapists to his refusal to condemn the actions of white supremacists at the August 2017 Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, famously saying there were good people on, quote, both sides that led to the death of counter-protester Heather Heyer, to his administration's reclassification of gender through Title IX, to new immigration guidelines that deny asylum to almost anyone who who crosses the border illegally, the president has done little to discourage targeting Americans for their gender, religion, sexual orientation, or national origin. So what effect is this kind of rhetoric, unseen in presidential politics for generations, having on the rest of the country? On Tuesday, the FBI released a report stating that hate crimes in the U.S. rose 17% in 2017, the third consecutive year that number has gone up. The report cites 7,175 hate crimes in 2017, yet according to my guest Arjun Singh Sethi, author of American Hate Survivors Speak Out, considering the tendency of state and federal agencies to underreport such incidents, the number is most likely much higher. He joins us now live on the phone. Hello, Arjun. Welcome to Trump Watch. Thanks so much for being our guest on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I don't know if you've had an opportunity to review the FBI report, but the message seems difficult to ignore that this problem is getting quantifiably worse in America. Do you believe President Trump is responsible, and how reliable do you think these FBI numbers are? 
couple of thoughts. The FBI data clearly shows that hate is spiking across America. Yet, those statistics themselves underreport the prevalence of hate in America. The National Crime Victimization Survey, which is a self-reporting mechanism, pegs the number of hate crimes every year to be closer to 250,000. The reason there is such a gap between the FBI report, 7,000, and the National Crime Victimization Survey, 250,000, is because the FBI relies upon voluntary reporting by local police. And most police departments don't track hate crimes or they don't bother reporting hate crimes. So really, I I think we should be taking the FBI report with a grain of salt and recognizing that hate is a much greater problem than their data suggests. I also think that Donald Trump is in many ways responsible for the intensification of hate across this country. Look at the clips that you played in the intro to this episode. He, as president, has used rhetoric and policies to target vulnerable communities on the campaign trail and as president. And it's not surprising that we've seen a rise in anti-black racism, a rise in anti-Native sentiment, a rise in gender violence, and of course, a rise in white supremacy. Are there specific actions or rhetoric that President Trump has engaged in that you think have done the most to contribute to this increase in hate crimes across the country? You know, it's hard to peg uh, and and to pick any particular policy. Um, In many ways, I think it's a worldview. But I can give you a few anecdotes. So first of all, there have literally been thousands of incidents of hate in the classroom in the university and public life, where the suspect has specifically mentioned Donald Trump, his rhetoric, or his policy. That is clear and unequivocal evidence that Donald Trump is literally inspiring hate across this country. Furthermore, in my book, American Hate Survivors Speak Out, I actually profile two different mosques that were targeted on days related to the Muslim ban. So in December 2015, Donald Trump on the campaign trail said he wanted to ban Muslims from entering the United States. That very same day, someone left a pig's head outside the Al-Aqsa Islamic Society Mosque in Philadelphia. Fast forward. In January 2017, the night that Donald Trump signed the first iteration of the Muslim ban, a mosque was burned to the ground in Victoria, Texas. Those aren't coincidences. Those are, those are acts of Donald Trump inciting and emboldening hate across this country. Do you believe that his rhetoric is more behind this or actual actions, or is it a combination of both and impossible to discern? I think it's a combination of both. Uh, you know, we've seen leaders try to bring diverse communities together. We've seen leaders uh, try to heal division across this country. What this president has done is regularly sow division through his rhetoric and through his politics and really cultivate fear of the other 
fear of immigrants, fear of Muslims, refugees, uh, the undocumented community. Um, so really, for me, it's his rhetoric and his policies both uh, that continue to lead uh, to hate violence across this country. To clearly define our terms here, what's your own personal definition of what constitutes a hate crime? A hate crime is a crime that would not have occurred absent the victim's identity. So in other words, it's targeting someone on account of a protected characteristic, like their faith, race, national origin. So one of the families whose own experience with a hate crime is, uh, is and is profiled in your book is that of Haifa Victoria and Rami Jabara. Haifa and Victoria's son Khalid was killed by a neighbor who had been firing off a gun in his house uh, allegedly the day he committed the crime. As they described, police in their town of Tulsa, Oklahoma, refused to enter uh, the suspect's house without a warrant. What does law enforcement need to do differently to help? reduce and produce positive outcomes in instances of hate crimes as the the people who who offered their story who gave their story up in your book mentioned you know if this was an african american firing off a gun in his house you have to wonder if the same stringent warrant rules would be in effect yeah just so all the listeners know all the facts the murder of college of Barra, um, was a completely preventable hate crime the Jabaras are a Christian Lebanese family that fled the Civil War and settled in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And they made a good life for themselves. And all was well until a white supremacist moved next door who terrorized the family. He called them things like dirty Arabs, dirty Muslims, ISIS. The white supremacist next door then ran over Haifa Jabara. He was arrested. Initially, he was not allowed to post bond because of his prior history of terrorizing the family, and because he had committed a violent act. Fast forward a few months, a new prosecutor is appointed to the case who doesn't know the case history. And when defense counsel makes a renewed motion for bond, it's granted. And so the white supremacist is allowed to return home next door to the family he terrorizes. Fast forward a few more months, he's still awaiting trial. College Jabara, this is Haifa's son, is in his home, and he hears shooting next door. He calls the police. He tells the police, the man who's terrorizing my family is shooting a gun next door. And as you rightly point out, the police went next door, knocked on the door, and when the white supremacists didn't answer, they left. Minutes later, he emerged from the house and murdered Khalid on his front doorstep. So that particular story shows the failure of prosecutors, defense counsels, judges, and police. Every single institution in this country failed the Jabaras. When we're talking specifically about what police can do to curb hate violence, first, getting back to where we started, I think we need better data collection. Every police officer needs to be trained on what is a hate crime, how to investigate a hate crime, and how to work with uh, 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 survivors of hate crimes, many of whom experience post-traumatic stress disorder. Better data will allow us to see who's being targeted where and by whom. 
we also have to have really serious conversations about state violence. Because the fact of the matter is, is so long as the government, so long as uh, a government institution like CBP, like DHS, put a target on our back, whether it's through the Muslim ban, the refugee ban, the caging and separation of immigrant families, um, the repeal of DACA, we will always be a target um, of everyday Americans. Arjun, we're having a little bit of a cutout in your signal, so if it's possible for you to get anywhere where the reception's a little bit better, uh, that would be fantastic. I am, of course, speaking with Arjun Singh Sethi, author of American Hate, Survivors Speak Out, a book containing first-person accounts of hate crimes in the age of Trump. You're listening to Trump Watch. My name is Jesse Lent. Uh, Arjun, one recurring theme in your book is that people like the Jabara family, who we were just talking about, uh, who are Christian Lebanese Americans, are often targeted for being something else, a different identity, in this case being Muslim. Uh, You yourself, as a Sikh American, describe a couple frightening instances of being targeted for uh, people who presumably thought you were Muslim because of your beard and turban. Uh, But you and the subjects of the book reject the idea that since you were wrongly profiled, it's not your fight. Does it matter if the subject of a hate crime is not who the uh, attacker thinks that they are? It it really doesn't matter. And in many cases, Sikhs are targeted because they are perceived to be the other. Arabs are targeted because they are perceived to be the other. So yes, in some cases, it might be a mistaken identity, but often hate crimes simply target people who are perceived as different. And you are absolutely right. We have overwhelmingly seen vulnerable communities, whether it's Sikh Americans, Arab Americans, um, really stand in solidarity with the Muslim community and never somehow uh, uh, take uh, and assume the mistaken identity defense. You know, rather we stand alongside our Muslim brothers and sisters, in condemning hate of all kinds. Can you talk about some of those uh, harrowing experiences you had uh, of being racially profiled while you were working on this book? Sure. So, you know, right after I met the Jabara family and their family home in Tulsa, Oklahoma, I was driving to the airport, and a car pulled up behind me. And maybe I was driving slow, I don't know. And when the car, um, uh, the car then actually was sort of tailgating me and then pulled up um, to my left. And when the driver saw that I had a turban, he became enraged. He started mocking me. He started imitating my turban, wildly gesticulating. Uh, and then he veered his car towards mine. And so I pulled off uh, the side of the road because I genuinely uh, feared um, that he was going to harm me that day. Another story I talk about is when I was in Whitefish, Montana, I actually didn't feel comfortable just eating out in restaurants. So typically I would pick up my dinner um, and just make it in my uh, hotel room. And there was one day where I went to the local grocery store and I was in line and I was stared down by a cashier and a customer. And while in some cases I could have spoken to them and tried to break that barrier down, You know, in this day and age where guns are so prevalent, I quickly moved to the other line because I didn't want to escalate the situation. And I thought dialogue might actually have escalated the situation. And what was it that was signaling you that you shouldn't eat out in restaurants by yourself? 
you know, it's hard to sort of pinpoint any particular thing. Um, it's kind of just an intuition you have when you are um, uh, uh, from a vulnerable community. Sometimes it's the way people look. Um, it's the way people act. Um, it's whether they make eye contact. Um, I just generally felt um, um, unwelcome. I generally felt that people were looking at me very differently. And so I thought the safest thing uh, to do, given that I knew nobody in Whitefish, Montana, other than Tanya Gersh, the survivor of hate who's profiled in my book, the prudent and wise thing to do was to just keep a very low profile. You've said in the past that the U.S. is uh, founded on a hate crime, that of the decimation of North American tribes, followed by the enslavement of black Africans. Do you think this kind of racism or fear and hatred of the other is an inseparable part of American life? Do you ever foresee a day when the amount of hate crimes could be zero here in this country? Well, I think we have to remember that Donald Trump is but a symptom. The United States was built on a hate crime, the genocide and destruction of Native communities, and furthered on additional hate crimes, including slavery and Jim Crow. And so we have to understand and recognize that hate is endemic to the American experience. And part of the reason that we are in this moment is because we haven't done the difficult work of understanding our racial past. We haven't done the difficult work of understanding how anti-black racism and anti-Native sentiment weaves through so many of our institutions so seamlessly. I don't know if we will ever be... Um, a society that, that doesn't have hate. But I can tell you, we are much more likely uh, to curb hate if we have difficult conversations about our dark past rather than simply rewrite or ignore that past. To get back to the police for a moment, the book includes the story of Ruth Hopkins, a native tribal attorney from the Standing Rock Sioux Indian Reservation in Fort Yates, North Dakota. In her case, most of the hate crimes committed were in the police response to the protests attempting to block the Dakota Access Pipeline. Do you see the biggest challenge to battling hate crimes as being within or outside of the government, uh, the extreme police response to the protesters, or the hateful acts of individuals? Well, one of the reasons that I included Ruth's story, and Ruth is a Native activist, lawyer, a judge, and scientist, who was born on the Standing Rock uh, Indian Reservation and later experienced police violence there, uh, is because many vulnerable communities are actually experiencing state violence as forms of hate violence. Think of it from Ruth's perspective. Her community has endured genocide, systemic decimation, and now the U.S. government wants to come for what little land her community has left. So for her, the, the, the invasion uh, and the appropriation of that reservation amounts to a state-sponsored form of hate violence. Uh, and really, other examples I include in the book include deprivation of health care. Dominic Evans is a trans-disabled activist who talks about how he will die without the Affordable Care Act, 
And now he and so many others in his community have made this clear to the politicians of this country. And yet they persist, not just in trying to repeal the Affordable Care Act, but they persist in somehow saying it's unnecessary, it's expensive, uh, 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 it's not needed. And so for Dominic, he experiences the deprivation of health care as a state-sponsored form of hate because it literally amounts to a death sentence. A couple of the subjects of the book, activist Taylor Dumpson of Washington, D.C., and Tanya Gersh of Whitefish, Montana, raise the idea that some Internet companies may need to crack down on free speech or limit free speech to stop hate speech. In the conclusion of your book, American Hate, you bring up the idea that uh, the, the companies Cloudflare, Google, and GoDaddy, for example, three companies that delisted the white supremacist website, The Daily Stormer, following the incidents in Charlottesville, are not bound by the First Amendment and under the law are, quote, uh, free to host or eliminate any content they wish. So where do you believe First Amendment protection should end? Hate speech is obviously not protected speech under the Constitution, I believe falling under the same area of the law as yelling fire in a crowded theater. But where do you believe those protections should start and end? So we could have a five-hour program just (laughs) on that particular issue uh, because it is so complex uh, and it is so divisive. You know, a couple of quick observations. First, what is really striking to me about conversations about free speech and hate speech is that they almost always exclude survivors of hate, those most impacted. And if you speak to survivors of hate, they will overwhelmingly tell you, they will overwhelmingly tell you that it is important for technology companies to take a stand against hate. So... What are some of the ways that you believe hate crimes can be reduced to their pre-Trump levels? Uh, How can government help solve this problem at the local level or at the national level? Well, I do think we need better data. I think better data will allow us, again, to see who is being targeted where and by whom. I think we need the government to make uh, 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 the curbing of hate crimes a national priority. Uh, During the Clinton administration, we actually saw that administration make the decision to to, uh, look at the arson of African-American churches um, um, as a national priority. And so we actually saw during the Clinton administration a rapid decline um, in arson of African-American churches. So really, we can make the curbing of hate violence a national priority. We can make better data a national priority. But again, I do think we need to be looking at the intersection between hate violence and state violence, um, because so long as the government puts a target on our back, so will everyday Americans. And in the last minute we have here, what about the average person? What can the average citizen do, to, or non-citizen, should I say, do to present, prevent hate crimes? What can anyone in this country or beyond do? You have a section in the conclusion of the book about white allies. How, how do the rest of us become an ally to help? prevent this problem? They can do a lot. Um, You know, I think the first thing is don't be a bystander. Be an upstander. If you see hate, intervene. Make an intervention. You know, all of us are members of so many different 
institutions, whether it's a university, whether it's a school, whether it's a workplace, whether it's a library, um, our own families. Whenever we see racism, bigotry, misogyny, we have to make that intervention because the truth is if we can't have those conversations uh, in places where we're comfortable, like our houses of worship, workplaces, et cetera, how are we going to make a change in the broader world? The last thing I would say is I think it's just also important to support survivors, support impacted communities. And again, just in the wake of the Tree of Life massacre, we saw extraordinary examples of solidarity. The Muslim community uh, raised hundreds of thousands of dollars to support the Jewish community of Pittsburgh. Um, you know, it's shocking to know, but many survivors of hate violence don't have access to health care, don't have access to mental health support. And it's critical that they have those resources. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. I've been speaking with Arjun Singh Sethi, author of American Hate, Survivors Speak Out, a book containing first-person accounts of hate crimes in the age of Trump. You're listening to Trump Watch. My name is Jesse Lent. And that brings us to the end of this week's show. Reggie Johnson engineered this program live. You can hear all 93 episodes of Trump Watch with Jesse Lent at soundcloud.com slash trumpwatchwbai or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter and join us again next Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. when we'll break down another aspect of the Donald Trump administration. Until then, I'm your host, Jesse Lent. Talk to you next time. And I'm conquered in a car seat Nothing that I can do